Hey, Green Future Growers! Welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing! Hey, everyone! This is Jackie Marie Beyer, your host, here to help inspire you on your journey to create, grow, and enjoy a green, organic oasis. So let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. My first interview of 2022. But I am sorry to say we recorded this once. Well, we didn't record. We did this interview back in August. And it was one of the best interviews. And I know you guys are going to hear tons of golden seeds today because these two guests are just amazing. Their knowledge is incredible. They have an awesome website growmyownfood.com um and they have come so far and that is what enables them to be such great guests is because things are still kind of new and fresh to them so welcome to the show nikki and dave from permaculture gardens growmyownfood.com thank you we're so happy to hear we're so kind thank you for your introduction we're like we said we don't remember what we said in august but we hope we'll just start from scratch and and it's probably for a good reason that now there are new things happening we're you know new things that we've learned since then so hopefully we can share that oh no my goodness they went out of their day they spent all this time with me and then i blew it but it's just because you guys were like we got so into our pre-chat and then i guess i just anyway on to uh today so 2022 go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about your guys selves and your family and what you guys all have growing at growmyownfood.com thank you so i'm nikki and we're uh, a tag team duo well i guess we're a little bit bigger now but uh you can you can start off with our origin story. Okay, we're so we're the co-founders of Permaculture Gardens, which doesn't match our website URL, which is growmyownfood.com. Um, but we 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 started gardening because our kids, our two eldest kids, had severe allergies to a lot of things. So you name it: nuts, tree nuts, peanuts, tree nuts, uh, wheat legumes, peas, bean, yeah, beef, chicken, eggs, dairy, milk. So when they were, my eldest Zoe was 18 months. She had been 18 pounds for so long. And, um, you know, they stopped, told me to stop breastfeeding and we were, we didn't know what to feed her because she wasn't growing. She, she was diagnosed with failure to thrive. And then it happened. We, we worked with her allergies. We tried to give her a lot of, um, we tried, there was no allergy cookbook 15 years ago. There was one allergy cookbook um, 15 years ago. And then we tried to alternate grains. And, and then it happened again with our second child, Ethan, two years after. And he was allergic to fish, um, white fish. And then he turned blue. He was a little baby and he turned blue up yeah yeah it was that was probably the most nerve-wracking yes because we had to call the paramedics and we you know the benadryl wasn't going down fast enough but after then we started questioning yeah (laughs) we started questioning 
the food system itself, like where, why is this happening now? I come from the Philippines. Peanut allergies aren't common. We have peanuts in all our foods, and we I had didn't have a peanut allergy, and Dave, um, yeah. for us. So then we switched to. And at the same time, you had you had GI issues, right? You would get yeah. food poisoning a lot. Like once a month, he would have to throw up something. Well, I would get yeah. Right. I would get issues. Regular, issues. like I don't know what's happening, and he was just, it's okay. It's, it would be like a regular thing that when we and at that time we were eating in McDonald's, eating in KFC, shopping at Costco, eating we're out a lot. Economical, like buying the the, the massive food, but not making my own food, freezing it into little portions and things like that. And then we we after those two experiences were so traumatic that we switched to buying organic food, but then. Uh, the organic food was expensive, and then uh, you didn't know exactly where. It was just a labeling thing. You don't know where it comes from. So we started looking more and more into uh, growing some of our own food. And uh, I think we went on a book date once. Yeah, bookstore date when there were still bookstores. <laughs> and uh, we stumbled upon the term permaculture in one of the organic gardening books. So we checked it out, we looked online, and we discovered how permaculture was used to green the deserts of China. It was like a mandate from the government where they had an eroded area, and in the span of three years, it was lush, and there was an economy, and everything was growing again. And it was uh, used to green the deserts of Jordan. And that just for us, like, wow, that was so life-changing. How can if they can do it in the desert, then we can certainly do it in our backyard because we were trying to grow a few tomatoes here and we were failing. We didn't know what we were doing. It was just like putting spaghetti on the wall or just growing randomly. And there was nobody to help us. Even when we did find permaculture, if you call up one of the permaculture guys and they say, oh, my backyard, I don't know what's wrong with it. Or, you know, it, it's not it's not common for at least it wasn't then for permaculture folks to really focus on the backyard because that's so easy for them it's really their their business and their job they were really more keen on i want to green a big landscape i want to make the most impact on a larger landscape so we really felt like um every night was research <laughs> every night was learning more and and every day was growing more in the townhouse so uh we had we had a backyard that we set up a few little raised beds, but we kind of went into this uh, wholeheartedly and we converted the entire backyard into a, a food forest. So even though it's north facing and we only get six months of sun a year, we wanted to maximize our production by integrating as many perennial systems as possible. So there was a lot of, a lot of learning over the years, but we figured out a bunch of combinations that worked and uh, so the game was how much more can we grow this year? How much more can we grow and in this tiny space that we had, which is, I often say, one fortieth of an acre, but in square feet, what is that, Dave? I think uh, it's about maybe 500 square feet total. Of growing through. space that we I can grow in. I have a community garden at my work, but that's total. That's about the total for what we have. Mm. That, that's the actual growing space, not the... The not access, the space. yeah, not the palette. And tell us our 
curious how many kids you have in your family that you're feeding now because you talked about your oldest two but you have you've had more since then. yeah so the following as we grew more and more well one was our, our it, it did make a dent on our grocery bills because then you weren't buying organic which was pricier and then we grew more and more as well as a family so um we had four children after we have a total of six and the four children after we started growing more or growing organic growing doing more permaculture um have no allergies <laughs> there are no allergies thus far so it's not a large enough sample set to be able to definitively say that's what made the difference but in our minds it, it did and dave's um and dave's bouts of food poisoning he, it's a, yeah he doesn't have them anymore so so we got more and more into this and then uh we wanted to share our experiences so nikki found out at our local elementary school that there was a, a interior courtyard that wasn't being used uh for anything they, they just it was like an architectural leftover from the, the 70s and it's typical of schools here i don't know if uh, your listeners if any of you guys have schools and you find oh there's an empty space in the middle of the school i think the intention was to make it a reading garden some sort of a garden educational center um but it people just don't have the time to to invest in setting that kind of space up and so um I was able, I saw the space and I thought, oh my goodness, this would be a great opportunity to teach the kids where their food comes from. I had not yet even taken my PDC. Yes. Yes, I hadn't even studied permaculture um, uh, uh, formally and and yet, and I'm sure there are other people who haven't, and yet they're doing it already. And so, because we were so excited, we, we tried to get buy-in from the administration they were open to it and we had um, jointly written a grant to whole foods so they supplied the the money to start that garden with you know putting up raised beds and things like that then the community pitched in there were there were parents who helped teachers who helped and um, local boy scout troops and that garden is still there, but where our kids are no longer there. We're homeschooling three of them, so they're not in the elementary. But we have another school garden in the middle school right now that we started. Again, the administration is key to helping you know start your school gardens. So, yeah. We wanted to broaden our uh, reach a little bit after that experience, and that's how we started doing online education. So we started doing online webinars and. Uh, Every month we have a free, at least one or two free webinars that anybody can learn how to garden in and um, from. Uh, right now we have a monthly garden planning webinar to help anybody who wants to plan the month ahead. Uh, and topical webinars such as on composting or uh, soil or integrated pest management. Oh, one was by... by um, Nancy Lawson, for instance, the Humane Gardener. Many, I think, some of your guests, uh, Jackie, might have been on our on our webinars too. But they're a real wealth of um, of our knowledge comes from the people who we meet through these webinars and who who um, who teach our us and teach our our gardeners, our gardening clients as well. So let's just back up a. Uh 
bit because I always like to start my show off asking about like your very first gardening experience. Like who were you with? What did you grow? Like Dave, you grew up in in Pittsburgh? Is that what I remember right? Yeah, in Pittsburgh. So wait, do did your family grow things? Like did you start out learning as a kid or so my my mom was a member of the the area garden club. So they had a junior garden club which was basically us tagging along and helping work in the, they would have in some of the parks, they'd have community beds and things like that. So I, I got my first taste of that back then. And I think everybody has this, uh, it, it might be suppressed, but they, you, you kind of innately have this yearning <laughs> once you start engaging with nature, then, uh, I think that that left an impression on me. So even though I, after college, I, I didn't really grow anything uh, during college and for a number of years afterwards, because I was living in an apartment, but I still had that memory, kind of sensory memory. So uh, when we moved into our townhouse, that was one of the things that I wanted to try doing again. And Nikki, your experience. So I, I'm totally coming from the black thumb camp <laughs> and uh anybody there who's who's ever you know felt like they can't grow a single thing that was me growing up even though my grandmother who's 101 years old in california was a long lifetime gardener of flowers mostly she had one mango tree in the philippines so i'm from the philippines and dave's parents are from south africa and he grew up partly in, in England, actually, before moving to Pittsburgh. But in the Philippines, um, which has a, a richness of natural resources, I grew up mostly in the city uh, because it, cities where you can get ahead in life and so on and so forth. And I didn't I never really had that experience of growing until I came here to the States. Um, and I still I, I grew up with a garden in our in our in our house um, with lots very very shady garden with lots of old trees um cousins of the pawpaw the the star apple those are the trees um that were there and then here was my first gardening experience here was growing basil after we tried our best in the backyard to grow organic tomatoes so dave was doing the tomatoes and i was trying to do basil and then they died and i couldn't understand why they died <laughs> so just everything was new to me and i always felt that i could hold as i was going through the experience myself of trying and failing i could hold other people's hands i can remember myself being in the a first time gardener so much more clearly because it's so it's closer i guess i, I didn't start out gardening from the get-go that I have an empathy for folks who who have a hard time gardening and I'm always trying to improve and I've I've since then uh, definitely grown more plants and harvested more plants than I have killed them so I think that's that's what it's all about <laughs> is learning and and growing as you garden I think that's so true and I grew more last year than I ever have in my life like 10 times probably as much as I ever have in my life and I also killed more plants oh wow. like <laughs> I I totally struggled with basil like I bought all these basil seeds because I had interviewed someone who talked about growing basil um like literally patches of basil um for the to put in bouquets she said that um 
she was like a you know a flower florist. farmer that did uh yeah that sold bouquets to weddings and things uh-huh and that people just loved the um like it was like a red basil the flowers mixed in on the table because it made everything smell so good and I just I bombed I mean I just couldn't get them to germinate I tried over and over my husband got some to grow over like in our mini farm like my goal was to plant like marigold a patch of marigolds a patch of zinnias a patch of snapdragons and a patch of basil like a foot of each or two feet of each and like all around the border making like a perennial border mm-hmm. and it was but on the flip side you know I grew a lot so I think um I think that's awesome that you're helping people that way because there is always people do I I've talked to several people who have said you know oh I I can't grow anything and I've tried and this doesn't work and that doesn't work and um I think it's awesome that you guys are out there helping people and using your experience and doing doing things the way um that you've been doing it so uh do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year so we have a harvest competition among our children they each they each take a family of plants so cucurbits or the ones that are more prolific. Like we also do maybe six or seven experiments each year where we try something that sounds like it would be very interesting. We don't know what will happen, and quite often those things fail, but uh, it's always an adventure for for those side so, things. So to answer your question, it was the tromboncino rampicante zucchini squash. So it's an heirloom. Well, it's a stereotype. You know how they talk about zucchini, you get so much zucchini that you, you start uh, hiding it in parked cars and just leaving them randomly and in front of your kid i wrote an article about that (laughs) you did well um yes we were those definitely those people all our neighbors got this zucchini heirloom zucchini that looked like a swan grew so big on on in their front porch (laughs) dave i'm kind of losing you oh you're, you're like you cutting out of your sentences. Default microphone is changed. I think now try it. Is Dave. that better now? Oh my gosh, that's so much better. I'm so glad I said something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh we, we, gosh, had we had an external mic, but, yes, it wasn't... but we wasn't it wasn't plugged in right, or maybe my plug is loose already. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jackie. I hope that that's still No, that's fine. Okay. I just don't I don't want to lose anything else. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um yeah, I was I was talking about the the, the interesting Thing about these zucchinis is uh, it's a variety called Tromboncino. It's like an Italian summer climbing zucchini. So instead of it growing uh, fat, they kind of grow very long. And they're I think they're in the butternut squash. So it's it's kind of like a long summer butternut squash zucchini. But it's green, yeah, for and a they, long time. The cool thing is they climb. It's both a, a curse and a blessing. Is that they. They literally climb everywhere, uh, which is nice because then you can grow them vertically and minimize the amount of space they take up. But then they grow everywhere. So you have to, if you don't, if you go on vacation for a week or two, 
You can find them everywhere. <laughs> So that that grew... oh and mushrooms right oh yeah so that that grew well oh awesome that was one thing I definitely wanted to talk about with the mushrooms yeah I so I uh, I kind of gleaned from these mushroom uh, websites when they try I'm really into low tech mushroom cultivation so I don't want to have a some I don't want to have a lab or something to grow things in petri dishes I just want to eat lots of mushrooms economically and. Um, this year I tried uh, lion's mane, low tech. So I'd done oyster mushrooms before where you do uh, a, a low tech pasteurization where you, you take straw, a uh, straw bale, and then you, you soak it in uh, hydrated lime for a day or two. And that kills enough of the microbes off that you can then just inoculate it with oyster mushroom spawn and make your own little uh, tabletop kits to grow oyster mushrooms, but I had never done it with lion's mane, where you use sawdust and you basically just put sawdust and a little bit of grain in a plastic bag and, and pour boiling water on it. And then you, you would let that cool down. And then you put the, the lion's mane spawn in there. And it actually worked pretty well. Now I have seven or eight different little, little uh, plastic bags that are sprouting. So what, what's lion's good mane. about lion's mane? Oh, so yeah, each mushroom. So there's, there's maybe like eight or 10 mushrooms that are, are commonly cultivated. Our knowledge of mushrooms is kind of expanding every year, but uh, lion's mane, that's the thing that's really noted for is uh, improving your brain function. But yeah, memory, you give them before you, you give the kids lion's mane before they take tests. Um, and, and all mushrooms are, are anti-cancer from what we've learned. Yeah, if it's for, somehow they stimulate your immune system. So they have these long polysaccharide chains. Uh, don't ask me to explain what, a, what exactly the chemical structure of polysaccharide, but so, somehow it stimulates and tunes your immune system so that it's functioning better. And, and that helps to uh, reduce some of the cancerous growths, then your, your immune system is a little more sensitive to the cancerous growths that are happening in your body. But lion's mane is interesting because uh, we've I'm, I'm really big on oyster mushrooms because they're so easy to grow, but some people don't like the texture because it tends to be a little bit rubbery. So lion's mane, they, they generally love though, because when you uh, sear it, it tastes very much like uh, like meat. Yeah. It's a really good meat substitute. Kind of like portobello's. It's even meatier than that. I it's almost like you can say it's a chicken because it's not rubbery. It, yeah, when you sear it, it's it's like uh, you can you you uh, slice it. The mushroom is looks like a big puff ball with what they call teeth, shaggy mane, lion's mane is is the name of the it's a beautiful mushroom. mushroom too it's it's uh starts off white and this kind of big ball thing and then it gets this these little outgrowths that hang down that look like a, a shaggy mane <laughs> a white shaggy mane and then as you slice through the mushroom each of those slices are like patties that you can sear just with olive oil or whatever oil and, and seasoning and then that's like a dish in itself is just putting that in your sandwiches or 
in your for breakfast sometimes we have it uh, so yeah that's lion's mane growing something so just like what size are the i mean like quart size plastic like sandwich bags gallon size bags like I'm having a hard time picturing the plastic bag. No, and also, and and also if you didn't, you don't actually pour boiling water in a plastic bag, do you? Doesn't it melt the bag? So these are, um, they're special bags called uh, filter patch. They, they have a small little filter patch. They're rated for temperature so that it doesn't melt. You can even put them in a pressure cooker and they, they'll be fine. Um, at some point, I'd like to move to something a little more sustainable, like a, some kind of wooden crates that are sealed to a certain extent. But I'm not yet at that level where I feel confident enough to to not use the the plastic bags. But they, you can buy them if you look for a mushroom growing bag or mushroom filter bag. They're they're pretty common, and and it's just essentially. I'm trying to think about the size like a basketball like a, a grocery bag size yeah grocery bag size and then when you fill it up it looks like it's clear plastic and then it has a little white filter patch because you don't want all the other common fungi spores getting into your grow bag because it's the perfect climate for growing mushrooms uh, fungi you only want to grow oh. you're inoculated so what happens is you put in all the materials and the, the, the mushroom spawn to inoculate it, and then you seal it all up and you let the mushroom take over. It'll kind of colonize. You'll see little white growths as it, it kind eats. Of, yeah, it eats and digests this whole, uh, it's food essentially, like whether it's straw or whether it's or soybeans. sawdust. Yeah, and in the Philippines, my, my uncle does this to grow mushrooms and he uses soybean so uh, soybeans, the husks. The, the husks of the soybeans that are inoculated with mushrooms. And and essentially what Dave is doing when he pours the hot water before doing anything else is just like what you would do when you sterilize your your mason jars is to um, sterilize or pasteurize the straw from any other competing fungi. Right. That's what you're doing. Yeah, it's that you're um, so there's two different things you can either pasteurize, which gets rid of most of the things but you keep you you keep a few of the other beneficial microorganisms around and some mushrooms actually prefer that the ones that grow on compost for example like portobello it actually pre prefers that you don't completely sterilize something before you you inoculate it but then there's other ones like uh, shiitake mushrooms that it's a pretty slow grower so you really want to uh, completely wipe out everything so that it's not really competing with any other type of fungus. That was one of my questions was how long does it take to like from when you put them in the bag to when you can harvest and eat them? So it, it varies. The, the craziest one is oyster mushrooms. So if you take, and they'll grow on almost anything. One of the, the, the nice little workshops I do is I'll get somebody one of these bags and they put in a toilet paper roll and then they they pour the boiling water in and and kind of pasteurize and then they put the the oyster uh, mushroom grain in and from the time that we inoculate the oyster mushroom to the the point that it's starting to produce oyster mushrooms is literally two or three weeks um the lion's mane which i was talking about before took about two months 
uh, shiitake mushrooms, I th would take about, I'd say six, six months. And when you do it in a bag, it's generally faster. Other people will do it where they, they take logs that are freshly cut and they'll inoculate. They put these little pegs into the logs. And I, I tried that out a couple of years back, but if you're in a small area, it's difficult to store the logs in a way where you're, you're keeping them in moist. The, moist. So they tend to dry out and then they only produce once a year. So they might produce for five years, but they're only going to produce a flush like once or twice a year. So I found this, this way of using plastic bags was way more productive. If you, uh, you know, you, you can get, one to two pounds of oyster mushrooms from each bag and how many times well once it once you'll get it in these things called flushes where it grows a bunch of oyster mushrooms and then you cut them back and then it, it goes dormant for a week or two and then it starts again mm -hmm. you can typically get about two to three flushes per bag and then the cool thing is once it's done it's great fertilizer for your soil so you just so the inoculant material that they've that's spent and they've already eaten and digested and they're no longer growing from it, you just spread that as mushroom compost in your garden, and then it really, really boosts the fertility of it's the soil. It's a great mulch, and you might even get more flushes mm -hmm. once it's in the from garden. the ground. <laughs> yeah, from the ground. <laughs> cool, my listeners have asked me for years to find someone to talk about mushrooms um and just uh nobody i've never really had anybody come on before and talk about it i had no idea that they were so good for your immune system either and the funny thing is my grandson picked um he found lion's mane in the uh woods this uh summer and he dried them and he gave us a bunch for christmas so I'm pretty excited to uh, cook those. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there's specific mushrooms that are more immuno, you know, for the immune system more than others. So lion's, lion's mane's superpower is more like brain function, but the reishi and what other, what other ones? Well, are I think shiitake, reishi. Shiitake and reishi, they're known for to boost the immune system a lot. Turkey tail is Turkey the, tail is the anti super anti-cancer Anti-cancer. Well, we say super because it's the most studied right now for um, as, as an adjunct treatment to those who have cancer, uh, in specifically breast cancer. But I think that that's a study right now in the NIH that's, that they're doing collaboratively with the mycologist Paul Stamets, who's really known mm -hmm. in the Michael world. So that's, um, yeah, that turkey tail is pretty known for that. And the, the way that uh, we, we actually drink, you can, uh, reishi is a really bitter uh, mushroom. We've we grown that too. Yeah, we don't, <laughs> we've grown, we don't we've eat grown it. reishi too in a bag. Yeah, and we don't the, really, you don't eat it in a culinary sense because it's pretty hard and tough, but you can grind it up into a powder that you then drink a, a tea from. And it's uh, herbally, what's, uh, it's a... An, is it an adaptogen? Adaptogen. adaptogen. So you can, you drink it in your tea reg periodically and it, it, you, it kind of helps to keep your immune system functioning well. Yeah, it's like has a compounding effect. So the more 
if you drink it once, um, you know, may, may not see really any results, but if you drink it pretty regularly every, there, there are lots of herbs like that too, that if you drink pretty regularly, they really have a compounding beneficial effect on your, on your body in, in different ways. And for reishi mushrooms, uh, we drink them in a tea dried with rooibos and, and it tastes really good um, that way because <laughs> if we cooked it, we have tried it in <laughs> cook, having it even just, yeah, for cooking it by itself, it's really bitter. It's a bitter herb. It becomes very woody, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, those but, are so many. Th- and then there's there's cordyceps, which is a mushroom. That's really a different one. Cordyceps is a mushroom that, um, what does it do? Parasitizes. Oh, what does you it have do? To talk about the good part of it. Okay. <laughs> okay so it's a weird, weird. If you heard weird mushroom. when the when China hosted the Summer Olympics, and then a lot of their athletes were doing really well, and they were trying to figure out whether they were taking steroids. It turned out that they were all drinking cordyceps before because somehow it improves your your muscle function or something like that your energy it does i really felt this when i drank cordyceps tea uh we've never grown cordyceps because cordyceps in order to grow has to eat a worm like the mushroom parasitizes a worm it's a it zombifies um the insects yes and and it kind of controls some of their higher functions that they do crazy stuff so they will spread more of the fungus. oh that's what we talked about the last time is there are mushrooms that <clears throat> are used as oh mycopesticides huh. I entomopathogen now I can't I can't remember but they're mycopesticides should we call it micro remediation that's another one and that's where oh, sorry. mushrooms no no very it's very good point Jackie it's micro remediation is because mushrooms tend to um, because they they have these enzymes that they emit that digest they, mm-hmm. they, they don't have a stomach they digest things externally before they kind of suck them up so they they have these powerful enzymes that break down things into their organic matter into its constitute elements so in micromediation there are these areas that have been polluted with heavy metals so what's amazing about mushrooms is that yeah that was it they will take if you take uh, a couple molecules or, or atoms of the heavy metal and you add it to the end of a long hydrocarbon chain then it's it's no longer dangerous so these mushrooms literally can grow on these highly infected uh lands and highly, suck, polluted. highly polluted lands and suck up all the heavy metals and and sequester that heavy metals and safely in these long organic molecules and then of course you wouldn't eat the mushrooms growing there (laughs) but they're used in order to clean up oil spills and um toxic polluted lands lands where you know there's been uh you know bad chemicals in a specific land if you do have land that you think has been tainted by by pesticides or chemicals if you grow mushrooms there think specifically oyster again right oyster and uh strafaria which is also called uh wine cap mushrooms. wine cap mushrooms then they help remediate the land uh then but the, the the other thing that mushrooms are now being used for and this is from trad cotter who um i attended his talk about mycopesticides is how because there are mushrooms that tend to uh parasitize specific ants or ants 
um, or insects rather, that you can target, create your own mycopesticide by, um, so the, the quote unquote word is training, having them rec training the mushroom to recognize the, the specific insect that you're trying to kill. So for instance, in our gardener client's case, um, they had a big infestation of spotted lanternfly, which was big on the East Coast two years ago, and it decimated their grapes. So we gave, we showed them the, the, the video of this talk by Trad Cotter, and um, they started making their own pesticides from the mushroom, which is, this mushroom is called Bovaria, and it's a broad spectrum. You can buy this even in farmers, buy this as like a possible pest management solution, and it can be used broad spectrum, but because it's broad spectrum, you, it's not targeted to the spotted lanternfly. So what you would do is you would put it in a pe in a in a mason jar with a spotted lanternfly, the carcass or something, the carcass right? of a spotted lanternfly, and sort of have them uh, parasitize it, it over again or grow over that spotted lanternfly, right? So now they recognize that the spotted lanternfly is is yummy, <laughs> and, then, and then you would um, slurry this these. Um, Conidia, is that what they're called? The, the baby spores, the baby mushroom, the spores of the mushroom are growing on this and it's all white. And then once it's all white and you can you don't see the, the spotted lanternfly is all fuzzy, fuzzy, then you mix it up in a in water with water and you uh, slurry it up and you can put it in your in your sprayer. Like a foliar spray. Like a foliar spray. And when you spray it on the grapes or wherever the spotted lanternfly attacked, then if they come back again next year there are fungi that are ready to recognize oh that was that spotted lanternfly it's yummy let's go and um parasitize it and so they grow over that spotted lanternfly and then you eliminate the population um it's, naturally. it's, it's amazing but i i find it personally a little bit creepy because you don't want to do that with bees right you don't want ever to get the bee and actually make it attack the bee so so that's a little bit it's like on the <laughs> on the fringes of of what you can do for um with using without using chemicals but it's trying to be developed because then trad cotter was saying think of all the chemical pesticides we could take off the markets if we could just um you know have this target specific mycopesticide instead <laughs> Totally. I just got this email this morning from something called Sod Solutions, and they're like, step two was get glyphosate and and kill the dead areas of your lawn before you start fresh. And I just was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I was like, who are these people? Where did they get my name? Anyway, um, <laughs> the wrong gardener. <laughs> but yeah, and also like, you know, I'm sure listeners are going to be so interested in this because besides growing mushrooms for food and brain health and and you know the cancer and immune systems we all need to boost our immune systems but look at all these cool things it can do for um if you if you do have a problem in your garden like i was thinking i wonder if it would work for fire ants because it that's did. something in the south that i yeah. have heard uh, you know i've had several people talk about i've i've read questions from people in facebook groups and things like what do we do with these fire ants people that have like come you know you pick uh or or uh classroom garden type of people that are working with kids and they're like i can't have fire ants in here and what do i do i don't want to spray pesticides so 
Um, That's so fascinating. Yes, that was the exact um, example that he, his personal example was that he has a big um, trad Carter has a big farm and every year they invite, they had an event where they invited hundreds of people to come see it. And so he had fire ants, like three holes of fire ants in the ground. So he put those, he, he mycopesticide them with that, with Bavaria and it worked. She said there was no fire ant, there were no fire ants. So, yep. <laughs> if any, I don't know whether he's, uh, it's, it's basically a DIY solution. So I have the link, if you would like to put it in your, if, in the, if you'd need it, I have the link to really fuzzy, um, recordings of me in the front seat recording trad cotter give his talk about mycopesticides if anybody wanted it but <laughs> awesome uh well cool well yeah we'll definitely try to include the links in the show notes so what's something like that you guys are excited to try next year that you haven't tried before mm, let's see well like we were we we're saying like there are lots of things that are new that are happening and one of the things that's new is that we're going to move so we're yeah, gonna try where, to grow where are you more? moving to? Like just like across town, or like a whole other well the climate. We we grow so much already in our little yard, and we where we have eight people in our townhouse, and it's getting as they get bigger, it's a little bit cramped, and we want to experiment more with what we're doing in the garden. So uh, the primary reason we're we're looking for a new place is just to to get more land so that we can really go crazy. Um, but uh, secondary- oh, Chestnuts. Yeah, all <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah, we love to, to grow more perennial type. Uh, I wanted to ask about that too, because you kind of like started out talking about how you went from raised beds to a food forest. And like, like what does that look like now? Like, do you still have the raised beds or what describe you like your food forest type of? So we have the structure of the raised beds. It's kind of like a keyhole. So if you imagine our backyard is just a big square with a fence boxing it, then we've we've put raised beds along the outside, the inside of the fence. But then right in the center, we made a a, a kind of C-shaped keyhole um, bed, and when we first discovered about permaculture, the first thing we did is we went out to a nursery and bought a bunch of dwarf fruit trees and, and put them everywhere. And then it took us a couple of years to realize that some fruit trees require more light than others and some things grew well and other things grew well. So what we have now is it's kind of like a mixed usage space where we have things that have done really well. It's generally, um, we have a lot of berry bushes. So here's here's an example of a guild is we have two since it's shady, we have two pawpaw trees flanking. If you walk out our backyard, you'll you have a lane that goes straight into the gate from through the middle, yeah. Through the middle from our backyard uh, basement to to the gate. And then flanking that pathway are raised beds um, and an arch. So you have to walk under an arch because the arch we, is the thing that holds We made the that out of a- Cattle fence panel. That we bent over into a hoop. Yes, and flanking the arch is the tromboncino rampicante in the summer and gumi berries on both sides in the Right next spring. to the, the pawpaw. Right next to the pawpaw trees that are also 
um, flanking that that the 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 walkway, and the pawpaws do really well. We have two pawpaws, two gummiberry bushes beside them, um, oregano underneath that. As you, uh, that's by the gate, and then beside it we have tulsi growing. Sometimes okra. So we'll do seasonal. We'll we'll that's, grow all the seasonal annuals in the spaces between the perennials or underneath the perennials. So uh, I'll put. This is kind of where you think about the levels of a, of a food forest is you're not growing all at the same level so that as long as things can get a certain amount of sunlight they're fine or if they can climb up and find their sunlight so we grow the zucchinis or the, the beans like pole beans on the trellis and they kind of find their own sunlight so we don't, they don't take up much space uh, horizontal space in the raised in the beds. ground yeah. But they're right next to all these perennials, the pawpaws and things uh, that, we're, that we're growing. The other thing is that we grow our fruit trees. We try to prune them. So we train them along the fence. So Using espalier or espalier um, technique. And that's basically a fancy word to just say, put some, put some uh, hook eyes on the, <laughs> drill some hook eyes into the fence and string a metal wire and then put some ribbon into the arm, you know, fan out or or uh, train your pear tree to have its arms along grow the fence. along the fence yeah. by tying their their young buds or tying their their young branches to that wire every year. So the maintenance is maybe twice a year that I go out there and prune or you know reinforce or tie new sprouts that have come up so that it looks like it's grown you know secret garden kind of <laughs> it's grown against the fence so if, yes last year was the first year we got pears for from our tree of five years mm, that was that, grown that yeah that's that definitely technique. one of those fruit trees that prefers full sun but then uh we have some upright blackberries that we've trellised the same way uh you can grow them where you where you espalier them along the fence and they're even with the partial shade, they're amazingly productive. The whole summer last year, we the kids would just go out and have yeah, the whole maybe outing a month. would be picking blackberries. So free berries, and then so we 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 grow things in terms of uh, by having the different levels. Like Dave said, you're looking at even an underground root crop level to a herbaceous level, a shrub level a lower canopy and upper canopy levels. And there can be more than just, in permaculture, we talk about seven layers of the food forest, but there can be more sub layers in between those. And I was just listening to a talk on soil nutrition and the um, Dan Kittredge, that was the speaker was saying how um, his cover crops, he considers his cover crops a layer in, in a polyculture or in a uh, permaculture guild. No, it, like even that is a player that has a place to play amongst his vegetables. So why? Sure. So how about something that didn't go the way you thought it was gonna? Is there something that wasn't like as prolific as you thought it would be, or just didn't come out the way you thought it was gonna last summer, summer season, fall, whatever year? So I, I would say uh, I I do okra every year. And um, 
generally we start almost everything from from seed inside or in a in a seed tray before we transplant it outside and uh whenever i grew okra it would easily germinate in the seed tray and then whenever i uh i don't have enough room in our our backyard plot and it, it requires it wants a lot of sun so i i have a few raised beds at my uh work garden they have a community garden so i i would go there and transplant it and uh when i was i'm working remotely so i would only go there once every two weeks or once every week and i would transplant these okra and then the next time i go they'd all be dead so uh oh I found, I, I started towards the middle of summer around July. I just had all these extra okra seeds and I just broadcast them. And those ones did way better than anything that I transplanted. <laughs> so um, I think okra probably prefers to be direct sown once the, the soil temperature rises above us. Uh, I think they like warm soil. But I, I guess it's something to do with the root system, or maybe there was a creature that was coming along and loved okra. I, I... We did a few trials too. We did pepper trials of four different kinds of heirloom varieties of pepper and cucumber trials of four different kinds of cucumbers. And we, we offered these trials to our Grow It Yourself members for them to try out because they are all over the states too, to see which ones grew well where. And I think the Chicago pickling cu cucumber uh, um, grew really well for many of them, but there was this one cucumber that everybody didn't like, and it's a curious cucumber um, called what the Mexican, Mexican sour gherkin. The Mexican sour gherkin. So it's actually a very tiny little ball of a cucumber, like almost a pickling. It's about the size of a small grape, like maybe an a... olive, like that, like an olive size. And yeah, when it first of all, it would grow and grow and grow so long, but they have no fruits in the beginning, right? And then everybody was wondering, well, what's wrong with this thing? And then finally, at the very end of the season, it would produce several different of these small um, cucumber things that you could pickle, I guess. But when you um but it was advertised as it was already tasting like it was pickled yeah but that was not true pickled <laughs> <laughs> and so, it didn't taste pickled so so that one's just a it's just a curious thing to grow like if you like fascinating different plants that grow differently i think i have it growing still in inside the house among my indoor plants because it grows a vine that's super long and the leaves are pretty and it has yellow flowers. Of course, they're not being pollinated, so there's no there's no pickles in, or no cucumbers inside the house. But it's it's a nice yeah vine. I love the way you guys do all these experiments, and you have people from all around the country doing it. So you're getting all this feedback and a huge database of information, and just allowing people to connect and try like the same seeds in all these different gardens. That just must be so fun yeah that's and i love the way you came up with giy instead of diy giy <laughs> yes because we didn't want to grow it for that was the whole problem is people would and they still ask us to grow their gardens for them but because we're busy with the six kids and um homeschooling and working that we can't be in everybody's gardens but we want to give a person you know that power to fish or to grow their own food and so we have a course and they can you know, 
and we, we consult with them, which is great, because then you get to live vicariously through their seasons and see how things grow in Utah or California when we're here in the wet, in the East Coast where there's lots of water. Yeah, where there's climate differences. I, I think one of the, our big um, missions of this business is to, to find uh, all that information that used to be common knowledge and has been lost as, as societies become more in, kind of industrialized, but to bring that back and, and actually store it in a, in a form that can be easily uh, accessed for future generations. For sure. Um, and just, uh, I think that's funny. Like I tried to start this organic lawn care. Um, I called it local organic lawn care last summer. And like, that's what people, that's what I ended up doing is planting gardens for people instead. <laughs> like, I just wanted to mow their lawns and they're like, can you come plant my garden for me? Can you do my beds? Can you like, you know, show me what to grow? And just, I, I was surprised at how um, the twist that it took. But it's so, what a blessing to have you as their gardener, Jackie. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I learned a lot. And then like one lady, like she hadn't actually ever, she still hasn't moved into her house because of like with the construction boom, like first they were like, oh, it'll be done in March. And then it was going to be done in June. And then he swore to me it would be done in July, July 1st. She'd be moved in. So I like went to the farmer's market and got her all these starts. And then I ended up having to grow them in my garden because she's still not in there. The house still isn't finished because there's been such a backlog with the pandemic. With well, one, Montana is just booming and people are moving here. So there's tons more construction going on. And then there's just not enough nails or boards or screws or just any any you know appliances and just everything that you would need so hey progressive radio network listeners thanks for joining us today if you'd like to hear the full interview and the rest of um the getting to the root of things just go to the organic gardener podcast.com and click on the podcast tab and you can listen to the full show you can see all the show notes thanks for joining us today get your copy of the organic oasis guidebook available today from Amazon. It's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here, okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden, and just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.